this morning, if you have your Bibles, we, this is a traditional, the day that church normally, traditionally celebrates Palm Sunday. And I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, verses 12. And we're going to go through all the way through 33, but I'm going to read just the first five verses. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And as we look forward to the death on Friday, Good Friday, and also His resurrection on Sunday. Yes, on one hand, we realize the solemnness, but at the same time, we realize and we celebrate what God is doing. Amen? Amen. And so this morning, as we read God's Word, in verse 12, it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And remember, this is the Passover, and we've talked about this the past few weeks. Uh, people, scholars estimate, historians estimate, at least two million people by this time getting ready to get in for the Passover celebration. So in verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of, Zion, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. Verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb uh, that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Verse, I may as well, 18 and 19 too. Many people, because they had heard uh, that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. A familiar passage, and we've been dealing with and around the same theme for the past few weeks and uh, this whole season of prayer and Lent. And uh, this last week, we have the devotionals out there, and also the devotionals are on our uh, RLC family page. But let's go back and take a moment in time. Let's go back 2,000-some years. Because we realized that the crowd that was there at that point hailed him as king. There was hope and there was this, uh, this anticipation that has been building up. Because why? Because this, could this be the long-awaited Messiah? I mean, could this be the one? And why is this excitement and this, all this building up? Is because just in chapter 11, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this day is a, is a great day for them. It's filled with hope, but we know how the week ends. Their excitement and enthusiasm turns to indifference, and by Friday, they're calling for his execution. Jesus is crucified, or will be crucified by a frenzied mob, the same ones who shouted and hailed him as king. Got to realize that that first Palm Sunday, they hailed him as king, and a king A king did enter Jerusalem that day. But he wasn't a king who was going to sit on a throne. He was a king who was going to die on a cross. But they didn't realize that. 
as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he hears their hosannas and everything else and their praise. And, you know, he, but he knows their hearts. Behind that praise lies the hate that is about to just explode in a few more days. We talked about this a couple of weeks back. Because Jesus up till now, if you look at his ministry up till now, Jesus has avoided any kind of public display like this. Public recognition. But now is his hour. Now is the time. He is on schedule. God's divine plan of redemption is beginning to unfold. Or you want to call it, this is the beginning of the final chapter of God's plan of salvation. That's why Jesus allows. Why does he allow the people to shout and make all this commotion? Because he knows that what they are doing is going to make these Jewish leaders so angry. And that they are going to, it's going to basically push them over the edge where they're going to go crucify him. They decide to get rid of him. They've been trying to get rid of him for some time now. But this event basically seals the deal for them. This is it guys. We can't take this anymore. And though they thought they got rid of him, they didn't realize they were just playing a part in God's eternal plan. This is it, the Galilean. We've got to get rid of him. And I want to look at some of these events right there, and some of them we've talked about already. The first part that I want to look at is this whole procession that's happening, what we call the triumphant entry. It starts in verse 12, where Jesus begins... His ascent into Jerusalem. The next day, verse 12. So if you have your uh, Bibles, stay uh, in chapter 12 because we're going to go through some verses through there. Verse 12, it says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet them. Where are, where's the crowd right now? Again, we've talked the history of this. They're in Jerusalem. They've come for this celebration here. And so they hear it's Jesus and they bring palm branches and they come out. A couple of weeks back we talked about this. He's been in Bethany. He's probably spent the night in Bethany. Bethany's the place for Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And of course, while he's there, he's, that, he's getting ready. He sends out two disciples. Hey, go into this place. Go grab this donkey and the colt of a donkey and bring it back to me. If anyone stops you, say the master needs it. We've talked about that. How he was in total control. We know that as he's walking, he's coming from Galilee, he's coming, he has to cross over the Jordan, come all the way down, and then cross back over to go to Jericho, and then from Jericho, they make their way, Jericho's on the plain, right by the Jordan, and then they make their way up to Jerusalem. And we know that on the way, he's still teaching, he's still preaching, still performing miracles, and of course, a crowd is following him already. And of course, we know he's at Jericho, and at Jericho, we know he heals the blind one. We know Bartimaeus is one of them. And then we know this absolutely amazing story of redemption in Zacchaeus. I mean, the most hated man in Jericho's life is radically transformed. Why won't people be interested in following what's happening to this guy? And so there's this big crowd we've talked about of following him all the way. And now what's happened in Jerusalem, we said that they already know that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And now they're hearing this guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. He's coming up. There's a big crowd coming up with him. And so we can picture this through that small, I mean, the gate, the eastern gate was a small gate, history tells us. 
coming down this, this slope there, this big crowd with waving palm branches and everything else, and then this big crowd following Jesus, and right there is this explosion that's going to happen. It's an amazing, amazing sight when you see these two huge groups of people come together, and Jesus is at the center of it all. Like I was saying, historians say easily around two million people and you can imagine the excitement and the commotion, but also the, the anticipation and everything else that is going on. People are yelling, screaming, shouting, and everything else. Yet Jesus stays silent through it all, riding on the colt or a foal. Not a white horse, not a nice, pretty white horse. Because yes, he was a king, but he wasn't coming to bring war. He was coming. In peace. They were looking for a military conqueror, a full scale rebellion, because they wanted war against Rome. They wanted war against Rome, not just in a natural way by a bloody battle. They wanted a supernatural war. Because they've seen, hey, he raised someone from the dead, he sure has the power to put someone back, you know, back down. I'm sure some of them are thinking the same way. Hey, you know, Moses did all these miracles back in Egypt. They didn't have to fight a single thing and all these plagues and everything else. And they want that same kind of enthusiasm right now. He's going to come and destroy them and we don't even have to do anything. We're just going to sit there and watch those people. Little do they know that Jesus isn't coming to slay the enemy. He's coming as the lamb that is going to be slain. The triumphant entry. Next thing I want to focus on is the prophecies. And we talked about this in detail earlier. Verse 13, it says, and you need to realize the two prophecies that are fulfilled here. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Verse 14, Jesus found this young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. We see the procession, and now let's move to the prophecy. We see the two prophecies being fulfilled at that point of time. The messianic prophecy, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And we talked about it as part of the, what you call the Hallel, all the way from Psalms 113 to 118. They normally memorize it as they go to the Passover, go uh, for this pilgrimage, if you want to call it. They sang these songs of ascension. These are songs, what we call the conqueror psalms. And so this is Psalm 118, right at the end. There's this messianic promise. And of course, they're feeling it because now you have this messianic figure leading the crowd. Here is the king of Israel who's coming. And if you look at Matthew, it kind of tells us that if you read Matthew's version of the triumphant entry, it says they call him son of David. That's even more an indicator, a messianic title right there. This is it. You can feel in that moment, like I said, they feel the supernatural thing that's going to happen. But it's not going to happen like they want it to happen. The supernatural is going to happen and liberate them, free them from the Roman oppression. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. 
That's prophecy number one. And of course, Jesus riding on the donkey, and we talked about this, how specific it is to Zechariah 9 verse 9, where he talks about, you know, how he comes is just uh, having salvation lowly and riding upon a donkey, upon a coat of a donkey. Very specific, and you see it being fulfilled at this point here. A prophecy that was 600 or 700 years before this even happened is happening in front of them right there. It's being fulfilled in front of them. And of course, we know that a king riding on a horse, and particularly a white horse, was a sign of a conqueror, a triumph, a war. But someone riding on a donkey meant peace. And of course, no Roman soldier would have, would have you know, called up, hey, you know, there's war, it's about. They would never have seen something like this as a threat. And I can only picture, I always laugh about this in my own head, I guess. But, you know, if the Roman commander is all the way inside, he hears this loud noise and he asks someone, hey, what's happening here? And he says, don't worry about it. It's these crazy Jews again. <laughs> you know, if we don't get the picture because here in America we are prim and proper, you know. But if you see pictures of the Middle East, when they get excited, they're like, ah, you, it is crazy. It's these crazy Jews again. They're, they're waving these branches, and guess what? They're throwing broken. I told you, it wasn't a pretty sight. Broken branches on the ground, dirty clothes on the ground. It wasn't very pretty. No Roman soldiers like, okay, let's get ready. Ready the battle. Ready the troops. No. They would have been laughing at him. That's why they mock him all the way to the end. It's not a threat. He's not a threat at all. He comes riding on a donkey, but church, don't forget, in Revelation 19, he comes riding a white horse. Yeah. That's a whole nother ball game. Amen. He didn't come to judge the first time. He came in grace and mercy. Second time when he comes, it's very different. Amen. This time he came not to bring war, but he came to bring peace. He didn't come to kill, but to be killed. Yes. You have the procession. You have these prophecies being fulfilled. And now let's look at these disciples. I really feel sad for the disciples, at least initially. Love them, but they're pretty hard-headed. They're fishermen, and, you know, they're stuck in their ways, and they just have everything in mind, especially Peter. We said like last time, if anyone had an argument on who's the greatest, Peter would have been the loudest, right? Always has to say something. Verse 16. I love this portion of Scripture. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. They're remembering that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. You read the Gospels, most of the time, the disciples never figured what Jesus was trying to say, really. I mean, they understood it to some ex extent, but we shouldn't be surprised that they don't understand what's happening here right now. Because they have their own ideas, right? But it's only after... Jesus was glorified that they remember these things. It's just, you know, you, you got to think about it through their eyes and you sympathize. I sympathize with them because Jesus is so random to them. So random. Doesn't do things by the book. Does things that don't make sense. Eats on the Sabbath. Goes walking around. Does heals on the Sabbath and everything else. Everything that they've been taught, he's been breaking all that stuff, if you want to call it that. He's so random. I mean, right before that... If, you know, you're having the supper in the middle of the supper, totally in the middle of his food. Pushes away, washes their feet, you know, comes back and starts eating. Then he starts talking about his death and how he's going to suffer and everything else. Everybody's he's 
what's the word? He's laying such a sorrowful picture, painting such a sorrowful picture, serious picture. And the next morning, these guys are, what do they see? Instead of sorrow, it's all this excitement. People want to make him king. Everybody's hailing him, hailing him as king, and he's accepting that. I mean, they don't know what to expect. Because this was definitely what they, I mean, they, this was the last thing they expected when he went to Jerusalem. Because if you read, turn with me to 11 verse 16, what does Thomas say right there? In chapter 11 verse 16, what do they expect when they go to Jerusalem? Verse 16, 11, 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So they expect to be killed. Instead, you have this crazy crowd of probably over a million people screaming and trying to make him king. Who blames them for being confused? Instead of being killed, they're being cheered on, or he's being cheered on. And it's, it's kind of amazing that it says only after Jesus was glorified, glorified, that they realized kind of interesting because that's exactly after Jesus was raised from the dead and he went into heaven what happened when he went up the Holy Spirit came down and what does the Bible say what does the Holy Spirit do teach you all things and remind you of everything that I said that's exactly you see the Holy Spirit doing what he was destined to do if you want to call it that in the middle of all this chaos the disciples couldn't figure out what was happening and then you got to throw in, you got to realize, you know, throw in the fact that um, John doesn't say it, but Luke says, okay, he's, he's crying. He looks at the city and cries. And so you think they're confused now. He's crying. Now what's happening? Total. Like I said, you kind of feel bad for them. He's going to be killed. He's crying. Now they're hailing him as king, Messiah, and they're shouting Hosanna. Means what? Save us. Like I said. Little do they realize, too, that the excitement will turn to anger pretty soon. And when that excitement turns to anger, there's n I don't wonder. I mean, it's just, I realize that's why they ran away. They're so confused. Confused, everything. I mean, and you see this, on, of course, on Luke 22 in the road to Emmaus. That confusion in these two disciples are walking along totally on Easter morning. They're confused even by the resurrection then. Let's look at the crowd a little carefully right now. Verse 17, it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread word, spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Like I said earlier, you can just picture these two groups of people just coming together. Coming out from Jerusalem and there's real, real chaos. The people who had seen Lazarus come back to life or been brought back to life, what were they saying to the others? Hey, this is it. See what he did. He, he raised someone from the dead. This is the Messiah. This is probably the Messiah, the son of David. He's probably the king. You know, And that, when you spread things like that, a crowd gathers when you talk about the Messiah because this is what they've been waiting for. They come out to meet him because they've heard. And I love, it's kind of interesting, not love, but it's interesting. Why did they come out? Because uh, they had heard that he had performed this sign. 
And for them, this sign was an indicator that he was the Messiah. But you read that phrase, he had performed this sign. It also helps us understand the motivation for why they had come to check out Jesus. Because if you read that, they didn't come to seek Jesus. They came to see what he had done, really. They were not so interested, and if I can say this, take the liberty to say this, they weren't interested in the Messiah as much as the miracle. It's the same truth today, church. There are a lot of people who cry out. A lot of people who come to Jesus just to see what he can do rather than come to Jesus for who he really is. And very often, those are the people that leave disappointed. That leave disappointed and worse, they really turn their backs on Jesus and they are the ones that shout, crucify him. And we do it in our own way nowadays. Sunday they scream, Hosanna. Friday they scream, crucify him, release Barabbas. I mean, it's, they enjoyed the free food when he fed 5,000 people. I mean, they loved the... The excitement when they see someone, the lame man jump up, the blind man see, they enjoyed that. They're so ready to run after all the stuff that Jesus does. They followed him but didn't really follow him. It's kind of interesting because I was reading an article this past week. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. Because God, I prophesied, you know, I healed. But he says what? don't even know you. Don't let a miracle be an indicator of a person's relationship with Christ. Amen. You know, we go running, and let me, sorry, I digress from my sermon, but this is something we really need to understand. Just because, and I was having a conversation with Sam about it too, just because he performed a miracle, a person performs a miracle, doesn't mean he is called by God, because the same, the Bible says, I have done miracles, and God says what? I don't even know you. So don't run after the miracle or the person who's working miracles. Seek the real miracle. That's Jesus on the cross who was raised from the dead. Amen. Don't go exalting people, please. Don't exalt me or anybody else. We are just humble servants of the great God. And we have a great Amen. privilege of serving Him. Amen. It's not about me or anybody else. Come look at all the miracles. No. Follow me as I follow Christ on my hands, on my knees, begging Him, worshiping Him, grateful for everything He has done in my life. Amen. Don't go running like the crowd did, so interested in all the sensational stuff that when He really began to teach, saying, take up your cross, crucify yourself, talked about dying, drinking His blood, eating His flesh, what did they do? They walked away disappointed. You go running after miracles, you will be disappointed. Let me tell you this again. You go running after the sensational stuff, you will be disappointed. You go running after the gifts as such, you will be disappointed. Run after, chase after, seek after with all your heart, your strength, your mind, the one who is the gift giver rather than the gifts itself. Just because a person is loud and, the, you know, everything is, you know, everybody's excited and everything else doesn't mean a thing. This is evidence. You can go to a church that has amazing, they have the smoke machines and all the best musicians, everything. 
The worship may be great, but that's not worship. That's just serving God because they want to see what he's going to do next. I'm not judging anything. Please know my heart here. It's not about what happens around. It's what happens to you as you come into God's presence. That's what he's interested in. Don't get lost in the crowd, church. Don't get lost in the crowd. Go to church. Go to whatever you want to do. Don't expect to see something. Go expecting to meet with your Savior because he is ready to meet with you. Seriously, church. It's just, I meet with people and it's so much more and uh, Pastor Dave, you know, he shared, he shared from here, my friend from Sagu, and now he's down in Louisiana, and he said, the church is not shrinking, because we look at everything that's happening, some people, you know, the church is not shrinking, the church is growing deeper. There's a sifting happening. And I love that part. Because it's so easy to find people who go running after stuff, you know. You know, I want to, you got to entertain them and everything else. You know, you got to feel, they've got to feel that tingle and everything else. Feel the anointing and everything else. I believe in all that. But that's not an indicator. If you can't serve him, worship him, pray, have a relationship with him, it means nothing at all. Sorry, let me move on. Don't get lost in the crowd, church. Let's look at the Pharisees. Pharisees in verse 19. So the Pharisees said one to another, to one another. I went KJV on you there. Uh, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Look, this is getting us nowhere. Kind of indicates, you know, if you don't, it doesn't say it in John, but we know in another part, they go and tell him, hey, Jesus, tell your disciples to stay quiet. And Jesus says, hey, if they stay quiet, the rocks are going to cry it out. And so they are saying, hey, this is not getting us anyway. We were trying to get the crowd quiet. They won't keep quiet. We went to Jesus and tell him to keep the crowd quiet. That's not going to work either. He says, hey, this is not getting us anywhere. The whole world has gone run, uh, running after him. And, you know, this isn't helping, guys. We can't handle this anymore. And so you see, this crowd is going crazy. But what's happening to the Pharisees is they are really panicking right now. They are even more determined to carry out their plan. They're even more determined, and you get a picture of that if you drop down all the way to verse 53 in chapter 11. Verse 53, right there, before we get into this passage. Verse 53 in chapter 11, it says, So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That's it. They didn't want to. It's kind of amazing that these religious leaders didn't even want to entertain the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't want to entertain the possibility that he was their Messiah because what? He attacked their righteousness. He attacked, you know, called them what? Hypocrites for all the stuff they were doing. Dismantled their whole system of things they were, had built up. Exposed their fake religion, if you want to call it that. The anger and the frustration boils out. They want him dead, but the crowd wants him to be king. And they're struggling right now. They really can't do anything for a few more days. It's kind of interesting if you go to verse, when you go to verse 20, in the middle of the crowd, you see the crowd, you see the Pharisees, but in the middle of the crowd, you see these Gentiles in the middle of it. Verse 20 and 22. Now there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. 
Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. No idea why Philip went and told Andrew, but it is what it is. You read through that, and sometimes you just glance over it real fast, but you've got to realize it's quite important that John writes this. Because in the middle of everything, the disciples don't understand. The crowd is going crazy. The Pharisees are so upset. In the middle of this, you have someone who's earnestly seeking Jesus. Obviously, they, you can deduce that they are con converts, Gentile converts to, to uh, Judaism because they are coming to the pass for the Passover. And they are Gentiles. And of course, Philip being uh, from Bethsaida, which historians again tell you, had a lot of Gentiles. And there they see someone who's like, like them, you know. Probably has this, it's funny, we were talking about the southern drawl. You see someone, you kind of gravitate to him, right? When you are from Texas, you say it. Well, never mind. It's a, I always laugh at Heather's, I'm on my way to heaven and I feel good. And then she was, I don't know, six or seven years old. And I was like, where did that come from? So anyway, they see Philip. They see, sorry, it's just, it's just. It's funny, though. I had a friend of mine while I was studying. I told you I shouldn't go down this rabbit hole. But anyway, I had this friend of mine from England, and we were in Canada, and we, his roommate was from Alabama. He says, he says, Sid, I don't understand what he says sometimes. Is he speaking English sometimes? I was like, it was really, it's funny there. Uh, but anyway. In the middle of this, you see these Gentiles, they come to Philip because they recognize him as someone who they would be familiar with. And so caught up in this craziness, you have these Greeks who really are interested in knowing the truth. What do they come to Philip and says, we would like to see Jesus. In the middle of the mob, you have people who really want to see Jesus. The Jews want the Romans to be overthrown, but these Gentiles don't have any preconceived ideas at all. The Jews have an idea of what they want Jesus to do for them. These guys really don't have that kind of idea. Overthrowing the Romans is not a big, not a priority for them. They recognize Jesus. We want to see Jesus. When Philip, well, Philip didn't know what to do about it, so he goes to Andrew. And of course, they came, uh, Andrew and Philip take them to Jesus. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them. Realize he stayed quiet the whole time. He allows people to have the moment, I guess. But an earnest seeker, he will never deny. He will never turn his back on an earnest seeker. He will never turn a blind eye or turn his deaf ear to an earnest seeker. Jesus answered them. And I really think Jesus was responding to them as well as we go into the next few verses. Verse 23, and this is the final prediction that he gives right there about his death. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, and he says, The hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Again, I think he's talking to these disciples and these Gentiles, these Greeks who are there with him at that point of time. Because I can imagine what the question, they want to see Jesus, and he answered them. It doesn't tell us what the question was, correct? But I can only imagine what the question was. They asked Jesus, hey, what's happening? I guess it's simple, as simple as that. What's happening? What's this all about? What's going to happen? Why, why, why are you even here? And I can imagine that being the question for what he answers. The hour has come. They don't have, like I said, the same Jewish ad agenda. 
overthrowing the Romans is not in their plans as such. And what does he say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man to be glorified. And as soon as, and I can, again, I picture in my mind, you think about it, and you've got to think about it. You have these Gentiles there, and you have these Jews and a few of these other people there. The Jews being glorified means what? Being exalted. You know, you're lifting this guy up. And what do they take it to mean? He's being glorified. Yeah, he's coming. Now he's getting ready. The hour has come. Judgment on the Romans, and he's going to be king again. It's not his agenda, but you see what they are thinking right there as he's saying that. These Gentiles have a totally different idea at that point in time. He's going to take the Romans on. That's what they're thinking, but right as they're thinking that, he said, the Son of Man is going to be glorified, and then the very next verse, before they go get caught up, he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And I can picture, and you got a picture with me. He's just said these incredible, hey, what's happening? And everybody wants to know what's happening, correct? And so you can talk about Jesus, just a small group of people. What's happening? And he says, it's time to be glorified. And they're thinking, yes, finally. And before they can even get excited, he says, but the kernel of wheat, and he's talking about death. And I can picture them getting excited and this face, and all of a sudden they turn and they what? Because he disrupts everything that they expect all the time. All of a sudden, he just slams the door and all the expectations right there. Because they're assuming Rome is going to fall. But Rome's not going to fall. He's going to be the one. Like I said, he's got the power to raise people from the dead. He's got the power to kill people too. But he's not going to do that. He's not talking about coming as a conqueror. He's coming as one to die. And because a grain of wheat has to die to bring life, he is going to come to die to bring life. One pastor said he's not, I mean, he is talking about himself, trying his best to explain to them, I can't bring salvation by fighting a war. I can't bring salvation by bringing economic change. I can't bring salvation by leading a social revolution. I have to bring salvation by dying. And this is the time for me to die. got to digress for a second right here because sometimes we as Christians fall into this dominant mindset. Yes, I want to change my life. I want to change my habits. I'll be better, you know. But if only I get that other job, that new job, then my life will be better. If I only follow this rule or these rules, then I will be better. If I get this breakthrough or someone just gives me, what, $10,000, you know, for my business, I will be better. But you tell them, if you really want to be better, you got to die to yourself. They walk away. Because that's what it really means. Die to yourself. If you want to, let me put it this way, if you don't want to be miserable in your life anymore, die to yourself. Die to yourself. If I'm going to bring life, I have to die. And that's what he's trying to teach them. Verse 25, anyone who loves his life, who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now my soul is troubled. 
what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life gains eternal life. What's he saying right there, church? I am coming to die so that you have a chance to live. Church, if only we are willing to take up the cross and follow him, we gain eternal life. Count the cost, but are you willing to pay the price? You know the cost, but are you willing to pay the price? Know that as Jesus was persecuted, we will also be persecuted. As they made fun of him and mocked him, we will also, the same things will happen to us. You know the cost. We're never going to, no preacher is going to only paint the nice rosy picture. We tell you the truth. Now you know the cost. Are you willing to pay that price? To follow him. We all know that the disciples paid the price for following Christ. History tells us the price that they paid. God forbid that we ever get pushed to that kind of situation. But I trust that you and I will make the right choice. When it comes to following Christ or following the world. My soul has or is troubled, he says right at the end. And I really can't imagine what's going through Jesus' mind. I mean, the intensity, because the physical pain is right there. The shame, the ridicule, the mocking he faces, and worst of all, alienation from God himself. I have no idea what that feels like. I don't think we ever will because of what Christ has done. But we get a glimpse of his agony as he sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Please understand this, church. Jesus didn't go to the cross because, hey, that's his lot. That's destiny. That's fate. No. For Jesus, the cross was real. It was real. He felt the pain. He felt the agony. Every torn piece of flesh, every thorn that pierced his brow, every time he grasped or gasped for breath, it was real. He felt the flies on his face as they stuck to it. As blood dripped down from his sides and he could not even wipe it away. He felt the shame of being stripped naked physically but also of all his dignity. Dried mouth, parched lips, cracked lips if you want to call it that. He felt it all. And worst of all, he felt the weight of the curse of sin of the entire world on him. My sin. Is why he went to that cross. He was the lamb that was slain from before the foundations of the world. His blood washes away our sins. His sacrifice brings us forgiveness. By his stripes we are healed. And because he died, we get to live, church. Good Friday is just not another day. It's the day my Savior Paid a price for me. That's the story of Calvary. That's the great exchange. That's the best deal we will ever get. He took my place. He took my place. Father God, we thank you once again.
as we focus on God this last week, what we call the Passion Week, we focus our attention on the cross. Lord, we don't take your sacrifice lightly. The price you paid, the agony. Everything you went through emotionally, physically, spiritually. So that I didn't have to go through that again. Church, there will never be a greater sacrifice. And there will never be a greater show of love for you. A greater display of how much a person loves you. All you have to do is look to the cross, look at Jesus, and realize how much he loves you. And this Good Friday, church, I encourage you once again as we build it up. I know we've spent these last 40 days in prayer, but I encourage you once again, focus and find time this week. It's just one more week. Focus and find time to spend some extra time in His presence. Read His Word. Wait in His presence. Allow Him to captivate you with His love once again. Don't make it just another thing, another year. Just waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. Walk with Him this week. Walk with Him as He carries that cross up to Calvary. Be there with Him as they drive those nails into His hands, that put that thorn of crowns on His head, as they drive that spear through His side. Be there and realize He did it for me. He did it for you. Yes, we'll celebrate the resurrection next week. Yes, we'll celebrate the victory. But for now, church, let's fall on our knees and worship Him for taking our place. Let's worship Him for a minute, church. Let's all stand to our feet and worship Him. God, we thank you once again, Lord. We thank you for a reminder once again of the cross, reminders of the price you paid. 
Church, let me encourage you as, I, as we leave this place. Don't, please, please. As a pastor, I urge you, don't get lost in the crowd. Don't get caught up in the euphoria that you get lost in the crowd. Seek Him as those Gentiles, those Greeks did. Seek Christ for who He is. Fix your eyes on Him. Follow Him. Give your hearts to Him. Experience His love once again. Experience His love once again. Father God, we thank You once again. Thank You for this time, God, the privilege we enjoy of coming into Your presence and worshiping with Your saints, Lord. Focusing on the cross and realizing that if it wasn't for You, we wouldn't be here together. Lord, we pray, God, that even as we go through this week, God, Lord, we will always have reminders, God, about what you've done for me, for us, individually. I pray, God, once again, God, that you will stir our hearts, motivate our hearts, strengthen our walk with you. Thank you, Father, once again, God. And at this time, church, just stretch out your hands to our missionaries this morning. Let's pray for them, too. Father God, we thank you, God, for Daniel and Carly, Lord. I pray, God, and thank you, God, for the call that you have placed upon their lives, God, Lord. Lord, as they go and they step out in faith, I pray that you will honor their faith, Lord. You lead, God, the way, God. You guide them, God. Lord, we pray for appointments, God, that you will make for them that they don't even know about, God. Open doors for them to minister, God. Open doors, God, that they will be able to show the love of Christ that they know about, Lord. And I pray, God, prepare the hearts of the people as they go, God. That as they speak your word, God, it will fall. That seed will fall on good soil, Lord. And I pray, God, that you will provide and protect them, Lord. And I pray, God, we just can't wait, God, to hear of your faithfulness and your goodness through their obedience as they go right now. We bless them right now in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Church, have a wonderful week. Please remember, they are, our missionaries have a table out there. I would love for you to connect with them. And also remember, next week we have a potluck. It's a combined service. And so please sign up. The Easter lilies, if you want them, please sign up for that too. Uh, God bless you guys.